Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome to our latest podcast. And this one I entitled From Workstations to Mobile Devices to the iPad. And I, th- I thought I'd share with you a talk I gave on uh, literally yesterday at Stanford University. I gave Grand Rounds. And I was speaking about some of the changes in imaging, particularly as it relates to the um, use of images and the availability of images. And that's really going to be the focus of this talk. I'm going to try to show you a little bit and put in perspective where things have changed over the past 25 years and where things have not changed. And I gave this talk at Stanford, um, and a number of my friends were there, uh, Bob Drebin from Apple, via way back when Pixar, Derek Ney, Hip Graphics, uh, Derek and I have worked together forever, um, and some of the people, and for obviously the Stanford folks, and Gary Glazer was there, and Brooke Jeffrey, and Mike Fredley, so it's a terrific uh, honor to be there. And so I looked and said, well, uh, I, I brought some slides that uh, literally I showed at Stanford at Grand Rounds in 1989 and some of their multi, uh, multi-CT courses. And I use some of them and you'll see some of them. But I said that, you know, scanning technology has obviously advanced. We've gone from axial to dual source. We've gone to uh, 5 millimeter thick sections to 0.75 millimeter thick sections. Interpretation of scanned data has gone from film and view boxes to PAC systems, and imaging has gone in many ways from axials to multiplanar and in many situations to 3D imaging. And referring physician communication has gone from one-to-one consultations at the view box to consultations over phone or email. And obviously those first three are really critical achievements, but I wasn't really sure that fourth one was really an achievement because if you look at the optimal communication, it's really that one-to-one communication. And that's something I think all of us who've been around for a bit has become lost. Everyone's very busy. People can look at images elsewhere. In the old days, we had the films, and if you wanted to see them, you had to see us. And although that was painful for them and at times painful for us, it really was without a doubt the best way of communicating. Because if you look at it, what's the job of radiology? Our job is taking scanned data, whether it's CT or MR or ultrasound, and transforming this into information critical to patient care, and then delivering this information in a mission-critical fashion to the referring physician. Unless the information is in the right place at the right time, it's not of any use. Decisions are made without the information or with misinterpretation of the information or surely not with maximal interpretation of the information. And I made the point, looking how much things have changed, I showed this article, there's a journal, I guess the Newsweek Journal, February uh, 1986, so almost 25 years to the day I gave my talk, and there was an article actually about Pixar, and if you can read the fine print, but let me zoom up over one part where it basically was quoting me, saying that at RSNA, uh, the physicians saw this information, they were shocked at how good it was, and that in fact it would impact how surgeons actually use the information that they could rotate an image, which is what we did in those days, until they completely understood it. So again, this became very important and really was the basis for all the 3D imaging at Hopkins in the sense and other places. We've gone from, you know, crude 3D imaging on old scanners to the Pixar to Next, to Sun, to Silicon Graphics, which really was the first systems that really could give us the graphics we needed, and combining that with the speed and quality. But of course, those were $200,000 plus systems, to the O2, which looked like a toaster, it was called, with increased speed, particularly with special boards, to now where we can use PCs or literally any computer. 
particularly when you have the right uh, uh, boards. And so NVIDIA makes these very good graphics boards. And so that's kind of where we stand now, where you're now having costs that have gone down by a factor of several hundred and speed that's gone up by a factor of well over a thousand. I also made the point when I spoke at Stanford in 2005, we spoke about a 3D lab and the efficiency of everything coming to one place. And I still think it's very efficient and we still do it. But of course, availability was an issue. People, as 3D became more important, people wanted to access it. And that's both radiologists and non-radiologists. And we then talked about the client-server model where things were available in many different places. Again, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't everywhere. Uh, and it wasn't on mobile devices, but it was an improvement uh, from just a single workstation where there was one person and one computer and one seat, though often these client servers had limited functionality. I then mentioned about 3D imaging where things have gone. 1982, you're good if you recognize that as a pelvis, to the first images that actually Bob, who was in the audience, made at Lucas Films, which they made not knowing anything about medical imaging, but to the point being that they could show the presence of bone, muscle, and fat to where we made the Pixar really work well with good detail, particularly these are four millimeter thick sections every three millimeters, and used many Pixars to literally take a scan of a cadaver, uh, literally the whole body, which took us seven hours to scan, but there it is from AJR. If you look at the same time 3D is evolving, we talk about the CT uh, revolution, particularly 64 slice, but also the things that have followed 64 slice. And I won't go into detail, but we've spoken previously about the important changes, particularly in data sets. So it wasn't just the fact we had more slices, but these slices were of higher spatial resolution, higher temporal resolution, and they're isotropic, which means that we can acquire anything from the coronary arteries and extract them and analyze them. So in this patient with non-calcified plaque in the LAD and right coronary artery, we can see it on motion-free images. But again, we realize that just being able to get more slices is not the same as getting more information. So we need to get more information. And there's no doubt that something that 3D has been proven to give to us. And we talk about not so much 3D as much as we talk about volume visualization or volume imaging. And I've always used this quote that visualization is the process of transforming information into a visual form, enabling the user to observe the information. And the resulting visual display enables us to perceive features which are hidden in the data set, but nevertheless are needed for data exploration and analysis. And that's just a perfect explanation by Gershon, uh, because when you think about CT, here's just an example. What is enough information? What are we really looking at? This patient has Crohn's looking at complications, and yes, axial imaging, I can see the disease bowel, a thickening, minimal inflammation around it. But if I simply take that into a coronal, I can see the extent of the bowel loop that are involved, particularly on this image. Also, I see prominence of the vasa recta and stranding in the mesentery. But if I take that a bit further, I now have it on a MIP image. And look how you can see the marked vascular engorgement, the so-called engorged vasa recta, which means active disease. 
Um, I don't see the bow as well as I would like, but that's typical MIP imaging. But you can see the bow looks a bit thickened. But look at the detail at those small vessels well under a millimeter. You couldn't draw the vessels that well, and that means active disease. But if you took it one step further and you did volume rendering, now I'm showing you both the bowel with the thickening and the strictures, as well as all of the abnormal vascularity. And again, in a nice three-dimensional display. So again, how much information is enough? Is it the axial slices or is it the final 3D images? I think you would have to concur it's in the final 3D images. Or in this case, obvious mass, right level liver, cirrhotic patient, it's always going to be hepatoma. But you don't appreciate the neovascularity on the axial images that you do on the 3D map. And whether you're doing embolization, which was done in this case, or you're doing surgery, which was not done in this case, when you're looking at the vascularity and trying to grade tumors and determine what method of treatment should be done, it's these images that make all the difference. And yes, I saw the hepatic mass, but that was part one of a many-step process. Sometimes, in fact, you don't see the findings. Look at this case, and if I look carefully, look at those bright little structures. This was misread about three times, um, or underread. Outside studies, no one found the lesion. But look at this, very easy to miss, even in our study. But if you look at it a little bit more carefully in a coronal display, see those bright dots? And here it is again, a couple other views. But now you really see those bright dots. That's a MIP. And I can make the MIP a little bit thicker. And now look how you see those bright dots. Those are all carcinoid tumors. This patient had like 35 carcinoid tumors, easily diagnosed, but easily missed. There's not a lesion that reaches a centimeter, and they're all vascular. If you don't scan at the right time, and you're not looking in the right way, and you're not doing things correctly, you're going to easily miss those lesions. Or a case like this, just from the interpretation perspective, what's that dot? that we're looking at here. Well, that dot is the adrenal vein. You wouldn't call it from that dot, but on a 3D map, it's very, very obvious. Or communication. There's a large pseudoaneurysm coming off the aortic root in a patient who's at prior repair, hemopericardium, but try to explain that. Try to explain it as well as this pair of 3D images where you see the pseudoaneurysm at the surgical site at the margins, you see the section above it, you see the patient's relationship to the right coronary artery. Everything is there. And we know it's not just in these situations. Impact of what we see drives how medicine is practiced. We talk about the subtle pancreatic cancer with pancreatic duct dilatation. We can pick up pancreatic cancers earlier than ever. There's no mass effect here, but it's perfusion changes. And we talk about looking at signs, in this case, not very subtle, but mildly, markedly dilated common duct, encasement of distal common duct, there's a mass in the head of the pancreas, secondary involvement of the duodenum, all nicely shown. And this information in terms of staging, extent of disease, that patient had liver mets, really has allowed us to change pancreas imaging from saying resectable to unresectable to making it resectable and unresectable, but also borderline resectable. Where borderline are things that would always be considered unresectable. Encasement of portions of the artery, involvement of the SMA, but less than 180, or short segment occlusion of venous structures, things that would have made things unresectable. But now we understand that with advances in pancreatic imaging technique and surgical techniques, but imaging becomes critical because we can really be certain what we're seeing and what we see is what the surgeon will find. So it's not, they're not going in and guessing what's going to go on. And because these patients are borderline, you don't take them to surgery, but first you give them chemotherapy and radiation ther therapy 
seeing if you can neutralize the tumor so when the surgeon goes in, there are negative margins. There's no sense operating if you're going to have positive margins. We also find that when doing the studies correctly in a multidisciplinary type pattern, the accuracy increases. In fact, an article from Hopkins in Pancreatic Cancer, 18.7% of patients had changed in the status of their clinical disease based on us redoing the studies or reinterpreting the studies. And sometimes we'll say it's not pancreatic cancer, it's lymphoma. And sometimes we'll say there are METs when there weren't METs before. And sometimes we'll say the tumor involves a vessel where there was not involving or where it's abutting when it was involving. So we change what goes on. And of course, in a multidisciplinary conference, it's not just radiology that changes things, pathology also impacts on things. But the multidisciplinary conference is kind of the best of all worlds because it's one-to-one -one communication or one within a group, but you're all talking the same talk, walking the same walk at the same time. Now, there was an article recently published talking about how in this tertiary conference at this one center, this was actually in Israel, change in up to 50% of cases, major changes in management, 37%, uh, lung cancer number one, breast, colon, pancreas, those seems like very high numbers. I mean, it is true when you redo studies, when you look at it carefully, but those seemed almost too high. When you read the article a little bit further, it said that they did not read the prior reports. And so how do you know you missed anything, right? How do you know you have errors? We do not know whether there was a mistake in the original report or it was misunderstood by the oncologist, whether comparisons were carried out or if information was missing. Nevertheless, the management decisions made by the treating oncologist, and it is his opinion that counts. This is crazy because what you're saying, and maybe it's a, I thought it was a great article because it is crazy because what you're saying is we don't know if they read it incorrectly. We don't know if they read it correctly. We don't know anything, but this is what the guy told us. And so where's the misinterpretation? Was it the reading or the listening or the misunderstanding or secondhand information? And maybe it was the radiologist's fault or maybe the oncologist's fault, but surely the communication was not there. If you're not reading the reports and you're coming up with something else, that is a communication error. And, you know, there was an article, same group of people, talking about communication errors, errors of documentation, inaccurate or incomplete communication, failures in the communication loop. And this, my friends, was all three of them. And they make the point that active failures of urine errors include procedural complications, mistakes, diagnostic misses, misinterpretations. But all that is true, but communication, if you read it correctly, at least get the information to the referring doc. And we know we, there are mistakes made, there's misreads, we speak about that all the time. There's an article from Hopkins looking at some of the common errors, trying to uh, tell us all what to look at, whether it's an unsuspected PE, always look at the lung bases, especially in oncology patients, look at coronals for the kidneys, don't miss masses at the upper lower pole. And that's all true, but it goes more than that. Um, it really is this whole process of communication. Physicians require access to information, whether it's radiology or labs. That's how you manage patients. And that's really what our job is, is this patient management. And radiology has always been critical to this. And we've gone from film to PACS. But we, we now are having these issues in terms of communication. Um, again, we talk about how we look at information 
and we need to do things correctly. So looking at axials alone, particularly for the surgeons, is not going to help as much as multiplanar in 3Ds. But it's this creating the information, then sending the information, getting the reports. The paradigm is now working. Everyone's busier and busier. I mentioned at the start of this talk that one-to-one -one consultation is not there. That's what's needed. How do we get that? How do we go backwards in time? Well, the only way to go backwards in time is really to go forwards in time. And I think one solution, and maybe not the only solution, is the iPad. Introduced a year ago, and yesterday they announced next week they're going to introduce the iPad uh, version 2. But we worked on a process uh, to develop something that runs on the iPad where you can do all of the imaging and you can put the iPad in the hands of the clinician and you could look at it in 2D or 3D in axial or multiplanar and then look at everything interactively. Load times, a thousand slices or so a second, the ability with easy controls. So now you can see right here, we're able to look at the images. Again, it's all fingerprint controls. Very, very simple. Whether it's selecting 2D or 3D distances or measurements, whether it's selecting cut planes, viewing from different angles, but everything is interactive. We have a set of tools on the left, but all of those tools you can do by simply pressing your finger at a certain point or doing a certain motion with your hand. It's made possible by the iPad, but also the back-end Tesla NVIDIA chips running on a uh, HP server uh, using this CUDA language, which is the CUDA kernels running on GPU. That's the NVIDIA way of doing things. I'm doing this all at high uh, performance, 10 to 15 frames per second at the full data resolution. There's no down sampling at any time in the study. And you could do this not only on the iPad, but on a web client. So you can use it on any computer without software, just logging in. You can do it on an iPhone. You can use any type of web uh, support, whether it's Safari or Chrome or Firefox or anything in between. And in fact, at the end of the day, as you'll see, you'll be able to do this on uh, non-iPad type devices, you know, running, uh, running uh, Android from Google, for example. The Mac, obviously, is ideal. The iOS uh, client, particularly as we go to 3.14, multi-touch control, multitasking, and even on the Apple Store as we talk across all of the devices, from the pad to the phone to the um, pod. And deployment, you can see here, you need to address and get data from your database, which is done by Singo in our case. Uh, and then everything is basically uh, on the fly. You can use wireless, what we typically do. You can use 3G. Uh, wireless tends to be faster, and when you have good wireless, it's the better thing to do. And here's just some of the simple ways it's actually done where the whole process does work to be able to give you that real-time perspective. And so what you're really doing is saying, now we have information everywhere, anywhere, anytime in the cloud. You're not worrying where it is. You're just worrying how you can look at it, and there's not much of a worry because you have a phone in your pocket and your pad in your hand, and you have your computer on your desktop. Now, I think the key thing for us uh, is to improve the communication. Now, once the clinicians have the information, that, that alone improves communication. Uh, but we need to have more tools, whether it's video conferencing at the same time, looking at the image at the same time when we're in two different spots, 
But again, having the information everywhere is the first giant step. Now, sometimes people worry if we give the referring physicians access to the information, and particularly if we give tools, will that make our job any less valuable? I think the answer is no. I think it's not a challenge to survival. I think it's really the reverse. No one ever blocks access to information, or at least in the long term. You couldn't do that in Egypt a few weeks ago. You couldn't stop them from getting on Facebook. Everyone's going to see the images eventually, and they'll have tools to look at them. I think the key for us, uh, for the radiologists, is to be the master of the domain. They need your consultation. You know, we're experts, and you need to show that expertise. And I think by having images widely distributed, we'll have more opportunity to be more visible and more involved with that information. When clinicians look at the images, they need your expertise. So is the iPad going to replace a workstation? The answer is no. Can you do it accurately over an iPad? The answer is yes. FDA just approved the product on the iPad. They're going to approve some other ones in the short term. I've looked at it both ways. Very high quality uh, contrast, very high quality resolution on the iPad. I think it's better than most people's monitors. So I think definitely it's more than enough for making an accurate diagnosis. And the fact is, it's, you know, it's the iPad 1. You're getting a new one within the month. Networks are getting better, so the speed when you're using 3G or now 4G networks is increasing. I think there will be tools short-term for consultation and integrating onto the iPad or similar devices, expert systems, expert knowledge bases, checklists, everything you want, everything in one place. And it's interesting, of course, here it is, how it looks on the uh, Apple Store. Kind of looks pretty cool there. I did have a chuckle when I looked looking left the requirements just above requirements they talk it's a medical device it's in multiple languages but they rated it 12 plus for the following and let me just zoom up on that 12 plus infrequent mild sexual content or nudity i never quite have thought about medical imaging as nudity but i guess it just means the images are such good quality that you can see naked people so it's like the airport so i have to laugh about their rating but whatever so what are we really doing? This idea of what we do is really asset management. We create information, and we create information that's mission critical. So we need to generate the right data on the right devices, CT or MR, do the studies correctly, send that information quickly to the right people, the referring doc, ER, oncology, surgery, wherever they may be, on the right device, mobile devices, everyone is carrying. It gets to them, it gets there quickly, and now we're taking it a step further, giving them all the information at the point of care. And we talk about personal radiology, personalized radiology, that's what we talk about, the right test for the right patient, performed correctly, interpreted correctly, and that information is used quickly for management. And if we just do the first three steps, doing the study, interpreting, that's critical. But unless the information is where it needs to be, at the time it needs to be there, and three hours may not be the answer, maybe 15 minutes, it's just not going to help patient care. There's a great quote from Steve Jobs talking about focus. And uh, his comment is really well taken. People think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on. But that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that there are. You have to pick carefully. And that's a really good point. There's many things we can be doing in radiology. There's many ways we can do things. And at times, people speak so much about how you can do things. And they have meetings about that and risk meetings and PACS meetings and all sorts of meetings and nothing ever happens. So I'm telling you, what you got to do is 
figure out one way that works and go with it. And yes, there will be other ways. There's never one way to skin a cat. But when you talk about skinning a cat, it's not the same thing as skinning a cat. So I think this is going to be very exciting. Um, there are all sorts of things coming along. I was at NVIDIA yesterday and I saw uh, some of the uh, features of the uh, devices that are kind of like iPads. Um, the whole area of uh, Android type devices, uh, that whole Google universe, just another parallel universe, and who knows where that's going to go. Lots of excitement. Um, things are changing rapidly, and hopefully this talk made you really think about that. And so I thank my host at Stanford the other day and had a great visit. You know, what a, what a day and a half, Apple, uh, Stanford, and NVIDIA. And now I'm back in Baltimore working away. So with that, have a great day.